Welcome to the Digital Responsibility Podcast. There is a vibrant community around the world exploring how we drive forward digital innovation, products and services, and generally exploit technology progression for the sustained benefit of society and the planet. On this podcast, you will hear from me, Christopher Joynson, and Rob Price, two of the original founders of Corporate Digital Responsibility. As we speak to our guests, to hear their stories and piece together what it means to be responsible in the digital age. If you'd like to learn more, take a look at the website, corporatedigitalresponsibility.net. Welcome to episode seven of season five of the Digital Responsibility podcast. And I have to say, I've been particularly looking forward to this conversation for some time, ever since reading a fantastic book, The Orchid Outlaw, and also ever since kind of doing a sustainability roundtable in Bristol. So um, I've, I've, I've read the book, Ben. Uh, we've had the conversation, Richard. We're going to try and tie it all together in this conversation, talking about biodiversity. But, but let's do introductions to start with. Ben, would you like to kick us off? Thanks, Rob. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, so my name's Ben Jacob. Um, by day, I'm a lecturer. By night and in the pre-dawn hours, um, I'm a clandestine conservationist, I guess you could say, and uh, I'm particularly interested in a fascinating family of our British wildflowers, the native orchids. And so um, they've taken me on a journey, um, and some of that journey has been at night time, uh, rescuing them from potential destruction and development sites around the country um, and then by way of delving into their history turning my kitchen into a laboratory think a bit breaking bad but with uh, you know steam cookers etc uh, and uh, lots of orchid seed um, orchids have kind of taught me a lot and I guess that's uh, and they've taken me on this journey of discovery and um, I hope that's probably something we'll come back to later on in the discussion so that's me. Ben that's brilliant and and look I mean most people know me on this podcast for being a technologist but I am a lifetime plantsman as well so so to kind of read your adventures and 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 actually some of those dilemmas because in a sense when when I read you hovering around a field late at night, kind of digging up an orchid. You're, you're faced with, the, well, is that right? But as you say rightly in the book, well, if it's going to be dug up by a big digger the next morning and lost for eternity, then then how do you think about what is right and what is what is wrong anymore in that light? So, so love the book. Uh, we'll come back to that, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Rob. So, um, so I've, I've been in the in the geospatial and mapping industry for for over twenty years. Um, I did a degree in cartography uh, more more than twenty years ago now. And what I've seen during my career is that maps have become ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Everyone has a mobile phone in their pocket, which has got the GPS inside it. So it's just become part of our our day to day lives, really. And and that that's been a really fascinating thing for me to watch over the course of my career. And um, during that time, I've been involved in all sorts of types of mapping, and most recently in environmental applications of satellite Earth observation data. So, measuring the Earth using using satellites in space, and and that's what's led me to 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 launch a startup earlier this year, and um, which is specifically looking 
at new and novel ways of, of reporting on environmental information such as biodiversity. That's that's great, Richard. And, and I guess the key interest I'd got in bringing the three of us together on this conversation was to try and understand how we marry the the possibilities of the technology to solve or to help or to improve the opportunities to do something tangible about maintaining and improving biodiversity. So should we start with the book, Ben? Tell us tell us a bit more about um, the book in terms of the experience, but I guess some of the conclusions that you got to, some of the hopes that you'd got in, in, in regard to the things that we can practically do, maybe some of the fears that you had in terms of um, maybe the things that you saw repeated failures to deliver something tangible as a benefit. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, so as I mentioned earlier, the book uh, sort of charts the journey of discovery and uh, in a sense, many lessons that I was taught um, by these fascinating British flowers. Um, I, I was briefly a bit of context. I was very interested in tropical orchids around the world. And then a series of sort of unfortunate or in some ways fortunate circumstances brought me back to Britain where I thought, here I am marooned without orchids. And then one day I, I completely by chance discovered a bee orchid growing and, and bee orchids are an incredible um, flower which uh, native to this country and each flower sort of is has evolved over millions of years to resemble a bee sitting in a flower not just look like a bee sitting in a flower they combine hundreds of chemicals to smell like a female bee sitting in a flower and feel like a bee and um as i sort of researched the this sort of wonderful um developments of these plants and the family around them their different pollination um you know mechanisms um I became enthralled by this often sort of partly forgotten family of plants. And as I started to investigate them further, I uncovered a kind of lost history around them. They were used for hundreds of years as aphrodisiacs. But I also realized that they were, they have been for several decades facing quite a rapid decline in population. Um, and this was brought home to me uh, on one occasion. I came across this colony of orchids, the um, autumn ladies' tresses orchids, a wonderful sort of um, spiral of bell-shaped little flowers, the last orchid to, to bloom in Britain in, every year. And I was really delighted to find this colony growing on a roadside, um, kind of alongside thousands of cars every day and then a few months later i found this colony destroyed completely destroyed by a building development housing development and this made me rather perplexed because i'd grown up thinking well here we are in britain we look after our nature we've got robust laws we sort of uh, police if you like the rest of the world and their environmental laws we we're there to ban whale hunting and save, you know, stop the ivory trade, save the elephants and tigers everywhere. And so I thought, well, okay, these laws must have been, uh, you know, enacted in this case. Someone must be in prison for destroying these uh, native flowers. And I realized that although the laws are in place, they are not enacted. They're not policed. Uh, 
planners, uh, particularly developers, landowners, have a right, in a sense, defended by law to do whatever they wish on land that they own. And ironically, and I very soon found myself in this situation as, as I relate in the Orchid Outlaw, um, anyone who goes onto that land to take or rescue um, an endangered plant, alongside any other species, to be honest, faces very stiff penalties, £5,000 fine per plant uprooted or six months in prison. And so, as, as you mentioned earlier, it did become a bit of an ethical quandary. I was potentially facing pretty stiff um, legal penalties if I went onto this land um, to save these declining rare British plants. Um, and it was a choice that I made. Uh, and uh, I was successful and uh, this embarked me on this journey. But it did open my eyes to something where um, there, there seems to be a sort of an understanding that these laws are in place, that therefore, because they're in place, they work. Uh, our planning, the national planning policy framework talks about sustainability it talks about uh, safeguarding our ecosystems but even built into the, the planning policy of the land um, it is the prioritizing of economic benefit and, and, and I guess one of the problems is, I mean you said it earlier in terms of the description of the bee orchid or some of the other orchids that maybe kind of people wouldn't recognize as what they perceive as an orchid because they'll have seen the ones in the garden centres um, and, and how they look. And then some might not want to see an orchid for the purposes of kind of wanting to develop the land. And then, of course, as you say in the book, sometimes it's just that you're at the wrong time of year, so you're not there for the few weeks that actually you're something that you could detect. Now, on one hand, if there was a map with all of those known orchids dotted around so that there was true transparency of that, then we might say that was great. But on the other hand, that might equal, equally expose things that are also create risks, different risks of their own. So, so I guess the challenge that I've got for Richard is almost how, how do we begin to think about technology helping this challenge? What does geospatial technologies, mapping, data aggregation, how can we begin to harness that to create a benefit for well not only Ben but all of us in terms of kind of maintaining that biodiversity whether in regard to orchids or otherwise yeah yeah could I just pop in there briefly yeah. before Richard because I mean although here I am talking about orchids which have this largely forgotten history and cultural element to them the the, the book itself, I think, moves on from looking at orchids and how we germinate, propagate and protect them to, to the fact that really I have learned that they are like canaries in the coal mine. You know, when we've where we've got declining orchids, they are indicators of a decline in that ecosystem. And this is happening all around the country. And I think something which I've become more and more aware of is the way that orchids need the sort of healthy earth, they need healthy microorganisms within the earth. Orchids then connect to pollinators, pollinators connect to um, birds, uh, small mammals, these connect to larger birds and so on, up the food chain and back around through the nitrogen and the carbon cycles. So it's 
it's not just about, as you said, it's not just about a particular family of plants. It's, what these, it's about what these plants can tell us as warning signs, because we all need healthy ecosystems. We are completely dependent on that for so many resources, well-being, etc. And I think I, I'm fascinated here what, uh, what digital technology can do to, to help us in that regard. And I particularly remember the um, the story when you were probably kind of the early days of, of rescuing, and you, you I think there was a relationship between fungal or mycelium in the soil and the orchid that was growing, and 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 it was just that symbiotic relationship that was critical to maintain both probably. Um, so completely get that, Richard. I think um, fr from. You know, it's re really interesting, Ben, to, to hear you talk about these orchids as almost a sort of indicator species for the for the health of what's happening within a, a habitat or within an ecosystem. And my view on all of this is that that we need to, in order to understand decline, we need to be able to actually measure what's happening. And that there is that there is a lack of evidence in general about the decline in nature. So. Um, I think you, you mentioned that a few times in your book. Um, I think read, read other books um, from people such as um, Dave Dave Goulson, who looks at insects and, and the decline of insects. And the really important thing there for me is just the lack of evidence. A lot of it is quite hearsay. So um, that generally for the last 10, 20, 30, 50 years, there are just not many records of, of what's happened. And I think what technology gives us is the opportunity to really change that. And I think there's a lot of powerful things that that are going on at the moment around things like crowdsourcing. So so involving um, involve, involving enthusiasts who are nature enthusiasts in collecting data. You know, I, I mentioned earlier on that map, maps are now ubiquitous. We ha all have a mobile phone in our pocket that's got a GPS in it. That means anyone can take a photo and record the location of that photo and the time of that photo that that's a, an incredibly powerful piece of information um so so that's one end and then the bit that i'm interested in that that you know my background and i bring to this is looking at a, a holistic picture so what satellites allow us to do is understand what's happening at a landscape scale so i, I can't measure individual orchids from a satellite but what i can do is look at the health of the uh, habitat that the orchid is in for, on, on a holistic scale and look at the impacts around the edge of that that could be interfering with that so so for me it, it's really important that it, it's a it, it, there's a there's a lot of data there's a lot of data out there, there's lots of ways of gathering data out there but it's it's really important that it's all tied up in the right way and that there's a really collaborative approach in how all of this is recorded so I can understand, and I completely get your point, Richard. I mean, many, many, many years ago, um, I, I worked with the Department of Transport to deliver Transport Direct. And by creating an online service that used the next generation then of OS maps, um, people en masse kind of told us that churches were in the wrong place or some bit of data was wrong, and, and thereby you improve the quality of the underlying data set. So I could just imagine... Uh, my mum in, in days gone by uh, out there with the Knotts Wildlife Trust taking pictures of orchids, which she did. I've got them on my laptop um, and, and she could have sent it into a central point and that be tagged as present somewhere. 
um, and appropriate protection around that information for for those who then needed to do something with it. Um, but then, of course, it's the um, how's that then used by developers? How's it then used by local authorities to make decisions for the right reasons? So, can you? I think that I think the, things are changing, aren't there? Regulations are changing in that space. Could you perhaps talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. They they are they are changing, and and I do you know I, I do understand the point here about there's something about something being heavily protected as a species, and and part of that um, that part part of that protection of a species having to be protecting its location or almost its identity. It's it's got to be protected in 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 where it is. But there's a there's a balance there between knowing what it is and exposing that to people and knowing where it is versus having to protect its location from it, it coming to harm i think in terms of the the, the new regulation what what we're seeing uh, what what's coming into force later this year is uh, something that's coming in under part of the environment act 2020 which from later this year will uh, enforce uh, planning applications in england to demonstrate 10% biodiversity, biodiversity net gain as part of that. Um, and that has to be monitored for 30 years into the future. And it, it's it's very interesting. There's some very, very interesting debates going on uh, around that at the moment, because the, the, key, the key question there is how do you measure that baseline? How, how do you put a figure and a number on biodiversity? And then how do you prove that that's that's improving over time what's the way of measuring that and and it's it's really it's developing some some really interesting debates and discussions about putting numbers onto nature and, and how you measure that and how you turn that into something of commercial value um and th there's lots of ways of thinking about that sometimes when you you think okay well we're going to put a value on biodiversity that that means maybe people will protect it more if you give it some some commercial value value but then on the other hand you could have a developer that just decides to, to pay that value and 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 demolish that that habitat or that species so so in some ways quite controversial i would say I, I can see ourselves heading towards biodiversity credits in the same way that we did carbon credits and offsetting and um, I, I i am intrigued by how you measure though because it's i mean the la very last episode of the podcast i was talking to a couple of guys in the us one of whom is leading uh, the ieee metrics committee around how you measure the impact of technology in terms of carbon and waste and things like that but but does, does the regulation set out the i mean that interdependency that we were talking about earlier the orchids dependent on the content of the soil the um the changing climate around that which will have an impact irrespective of whatever is done with the with the land how how do we, how do we go about measuring well that it's, it's very interesting because measuring this biodiversity baseline figure uh monitoring to the future is something that's been that there's there's a calculator that's been put in place what's called the, the biodiversity metric calculator which is something that's been mandated by by defra it's been created and mandated by defra and it's it's a highly complex um, complex set of of measurements of different aspects of of habitats essentially. So, um, for example, um, 
in in a in a grass grass meadow you will that the quality of that meadow will be determined by how many different species are in that in that meadow um that that will determine the condition the 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 issues with all of that are that um it 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 has to be measured at certain times of year for you to be able to optimize it it's highly subjective because it requires um, a, an, an ecologist who's p- potentially a, a very good botanist to go to the site and understand what all those different species are. You could send several different ecologists and they'd all come back with a different answer uh, to understand number of species, quality of species and condition. So the way this is being measured at the moment, it is highly subjective. And and I believe, and, and you know, the organisation that, that the part of the reason I founded a new company is I believe there's an opportunity to put more objective things into the measurement process and that's where i think satellites can come in because they're measuring the quality and vigor of vegetation and that process of measuring that can be highly automated it's repeatable and you can remove a human from that from that measurement um so 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 yeah that that for me is is um it, 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 again it's it's nuanced there's lots of levels to it but i think it it there's a lot of complexity around how things are measured. I think that adding that digital objectivity, Richard, I think that is a that is a very interesting concept. Um, and while you're talking about satellites not being able to provide particularly granular detail, I am aware of wildlife trusts that are using drones to map orchid colonies and populations. Um, and that, I think, would be another very interesting sort of data source which could be you know layered on top of the sort of more holistic satellite one um i mean it just occurs it occurs to me that one of those things which you know as as rob has mentioned um that orchids have taught me is the fact that soil itself earth is a living environment you know in a tablespoon of soil there can be more living organisms than every human that has ever existed in history. And this is one of those sort of areas where science yet doesn't really have the answers. And so um, I'd be fascinated, I think it'd be great if technology could be developed that could detect sort of uh, microorganisms within soil in, in some way, because then you'd get a truly, or more holistic, idea of what is in a location and ecosystem because vegetation yes it's it's one thing and as well as the management of that vegetation but as i mentioned it's the it's the soil microorganisms the fungi the other invertebrates um and yeah that you still at the moment require that human input whether it's with a camera to go around sort of at the right times of year to sort of record everything which is there because currently the similar sort of action has to take place legally we get the environmental impact statements we get uh, vegetation reports um, uh, and in particular the sort of protected species such as toads slow worms etc they all have to be part of a developer's um, planning proposal Um, And I think where it falls down at this point, 
may be in terms of the legal element, um, or it may be that human element in the sense that I've seen multiple occasions, planning applications where the environmental reports, I talk about them a bit, uh, examples in the Orchid Outlaw, where these reports say this is going to be incredibly damaging to this environment. And yet the developers go ahead anyway um, and have been able to destroy that environment. Now, the biodiversity net gain could be a game changer, like you say. Um, I'm, I'm a little skeptical in that, in that regard. I've seen decades of laws that have supposedly been put in place to protect our environment, and they simply haven't worked. You know, you know we, we have um, populations of all kinds of species declining ever since the 1981 Wildlife and Countryside Act, which is the sort of cornerstone of every subsequent um, environmental law. And um, my suspicion might be, might be, you know, call me a cynic, biodiversity net gain could mean you destroy a bit of ancient woodland and in place you put in a field with various species of cows and sheep. In a sense, that is biodiversity net gain. I, I, I'm holding up Guy Shrubsoul's cover of um, a book that talks very much about Another that. Another great book, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think there are three things that come to mind as you were both talking. One is um, a very large global organisation I know reported an increase in their carbon emissions recently. And when they were asked why, they said, well, we're, we're measuring it properly now. We didn't quite get it to start with. And, and I think that's a fair fair statement. And, and probably something I could imagine would happen here is that there's a first attempt and you constantly kind of improve it. Second one is um, I must do a follow up and, and ask a guy called Holger Kessler to join the kind of podcast at one at one point. Holger uh, used to work for the British Geological Survey, probably I think still does actually, and, and has these uh, huge buildings full of all the soil and rock pores that have ever been dug up in the UK. And, and that's a massive data set, of course, that must have huge value in this conversation. And I was talking to another organisation who works um, for DEFRA, and, and they were kind of talking about doing soil samples across the, the, the UK as part of the work that they do. Um, and I guess the reason I mention all those is it comes back to me as the aggregation of data. That if, if we can pull all these data sources together and begin to make um, sensible assumptions and modelling of, and, and Richard, to your point, around those ecosystems as a whole and, and, and patterns of detection of those ecosystems and understanding where, where they're stressed, then in essence, that would seem to be a good thing. We then, Ben, completely agree with you, have to overlay um, intent, organisational intent, profit, uh, opportunity, and, and how people then use or misuse that data, but at least get the data right, gives us a chance of making an improvement. Richard, thoughts? Well, first thought for me is, you know, you know Ben, you said something a, a few minutes ago, which is that you still require human input. And, and I entirely agree with that. I think that but for the various examples that you named, I think, you know, even if you've got a drone there or other methods of collecting data, it still cannot replace a human. What I think we can do with with new new ways of measuring and new ways of collecting data is actually make that human input input much more targeted so we can we can actually use 
the human, the ecologist, um, in, in a really targeted way to collect things that that only they can do. So I so I do think there's a there's a you know there's a place for everything in this. And and I'm again I, I completely agree with you, Rob. I'm I'm a really big advocate of collaboration in all of this. I think that you know my my background is in satellite earth observation, but I can't answer everything that's needed here by any means and i don't think anyone can i think it requires everyone to come together to 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 use all this data in a, in a collaborative in a collaborative way and i think you know the final point from me coming back to what ben's saying about the you know the legislation itself and rob a comment that you made earlier about biodiversity credits we're already seeing biodiversity credits spinning up here as a result of this the there is a risk associated with all of this, exactly as Ben described. I think the principle of the legislation is sound and it remains to be seen how the execution actually uh, unfolds over the next um, six, 12 months, two years or so. And, and I think everything has to start somewhere. Biodiversity has probably been talked about less than some of the other environmental challenges that we face, climate change, carbon, etc., um, so it's great to see it on the agenda. It's critically important that there are books about orchids and about rainforests and about insects and about bees and all sorts of things. So, so that's fantastic to shine a light on this as a challenge. But we know it's a, it's a it's a horrendously complex challenge. But we've got to start somewhere and kind of look, look to improve it. So, so anything that enables us to get people thinking more about this seems to be a good thing to do. And, and I'm a massive advocate, actually, not of regulation. Regulation's important, but but of innovating and solving some of these problems that we face, biodiversity included amongst them, by using technology. So, so thank you, Richard, for coming and talking about the things that you're planning to do. Thank you, Ben, for shining a light in, in a brilliantly told story about something that's kind of really important as illustrative of that broader ecosystem of things. Final thoughts from each of you, though. Um, what and, and in the context of the kind of discussion, Ben, what would you hope that Richard can do for for you and your passion around orchids? What what challenge would you set to Richard for making it better than it's been and the, and that experience that, that you describe in the book? Um, I think it, I think it sounds very promising. You know, that's that's what I've come away from this as an overall feeling. And I think um, I think um, as technology develops, I think there is going to be it's going to get more granular. It's going to provide more data and it's going to help us. And I think, like you say, that sort of collaboration of so many data sources, I would like to see a central system which can collate uh, objectively as much as possible, automated, um, the data from different levels. So you'd be able to see uh, uh, on a site the health of the ecosystem measured in different ways, whether it's vegetation, invertebrates, the, the soil health, etc. cetera. Um, and I would like to see that um, kind of be reviewed in a compulsory manner as part of this biodiversity net gain process. And I think there's one other thing which, which uh, on another level, we can take digital to, and that is simply outreach 
the the sort of sense of um, teaching, learning, raising awareness of, because it is very, very complex. It's not just the data accumulation and analysis. It is nature. And this is something which I call in the book a tapestry. It's an incredibly elaborate tapestry, each thread depending on another. And we're at risk of these threads fraying. Um, uh, and I think raising awareness of that, the um, profile of how important these ecosystems are for us and their complexity and our future, their place in our past, that's another important role that digital technology can play. Fantastic. And and Richard, same question to you, but in reverse. So um, let, let's wind the clock forward a couple of years and uh, your, your product's out in the marketplace and, and it's being used by developers and local authorities. I guess two parts to it. Challenge for anybody listening, um, but also what would you then kind of come back to Ben with um, as, as a two years down the line as a comment of what you've seen and the experience of that, you hope? Um, I suppose answering the question about Ben firstly, two years down the line, I'd, I'd like to hope that Ben feels less afraid to be doing things um in in a, a sort of hidden way and and going get you know go, going around at night to do what he needs to do you know i think i think what he's doing is 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 fantastic um and and it should you know it shouldn't necessarily be happening in that way so i'd i'd like to think it's it's not anymore in two years time perhaps that's quite optimistic um in terms of the the the, the the kind of the 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 data and the bigger picture here and, and where things are in in two years I I think it's for me it's all about that raising awareness it's about constantly educating people it's really supporting that point that Ben's made about the linking of all the the, the, the different complexity around nature raising awareness around that and and it is it is happening you know we are we are seeing more awareness of of nature and more awareness of the humans the, the human impact on nature but we it, it's not necessarily quick enough we need to see it happening more quickly and we need to see it happening throughout the whole of society not not just in certain parts of society that's great um, thank you to both of you uh, I, I, I was I said at the start I was looking forward to the conversation loved the conversation um applaud what you're both doing thank you very much Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Ben.